Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash to book. Restrictions may apply. Good evening. It's Spooky Boo Roads from Sandcastle, California. I'm sitting here in the beautiful lighthouse overlooking the Sandcastle Beach and watching the vampire children out in the sand. They love the sand, even though they're not out in the sun. They still play like children, even though the ones who are changed from human will never grow old. Uncanny valley rings through my head when I see these children whose faces look sweet from afar until they turn toward the lighthouse, knowing I'm watching them. The whites of their eyes glow with iridescence and their irises are rimmed with blood. For this is what happens after they feed and like normal children. They run around after their supper, looking for a game of hide-and-seek or ghosts in the graveyard. Luckily for me, I am off limits to the little monsters as I am protected by spells, but others who come here to vacation or live for a new job must be careful. Changelings, the children who were turned by an untamed vampire, are feral at first until they have fed enough to begin to understand their cravings. The first time I opened my station overlooking the fog and the shores of the town was the first time I noticed one of the children. Through the thick fog, I saw two small moons hovering somewhere above the large rock on the shore. Even though I couldn't see her face or body, I knew something wasn't right. As she came closer, I realized the orbs were the eyes of a new vampire. Her eyes were full of fear and distress, as can be seen by the glowing sclera something often used to scare others into submission, but usually controlled by the vampire. She hissed as I walked out onto the balcony and cowered down into a squatting position. This poor child, left all alone by some monster to fend for herself. I recognized her as the missing girl from the Duncan family. Such a sweet, innocent soul now left to be damned forever into the night, without anyone to teach her the ways of the land. I would take her under my wing, but it is forbidden for a witch to do so. I am not allowed to help the damned in the land of purgatory. Children in purgatory are protected from the evil beings that wander the night, simply because they are innocent. But this child must have done something that she understood as a sin to be damned forever. 
As I watched her try to inch forward towards me, she cried into the night. Such pain echoed from her scream, such hunger. I'm sure by now she was hearing my pulse and smelling the blood within my veins like a wild animal. Her sad eyes looked into mine and I could suddenly understand what she wanted. Her body ached with hunger. Inside she wanted a purger. But her urges were for my blood. As the evil penetrated her soul further, her want for human food left, and all she craved was the crimson liquid in my veins. There was no saving this poor child, for she could not be trained. The feral instincts were too far gone for anyone to take and make her at least understand that humans cannot be removed from the earth, for once humans were gone and the ferals took over, the vampires would starve and cease to exist. That was the law of the land. This we all know to be true. We don't know for sure which of the citizens are vampires, and the ones we did know about were friends from before. A curse put upon us. No one wanted to kill their friends if the friends were still coherent and somewhat human. Not all the people here know about the evil in the town of Sandcastle either. Some people simply believe there is more crime happening because the city is growing. While that might be true, it isn't the reason why the area is damned forever and the beings that live here cannot survive in other parts of the world. We are cursed by a spell cast long, long ago, and now we are the entrance between heaven and hell, a purgatory, if you will, if there is such a thing. But why should the children suffer? I asked myself as I watched the child test the boundary I created around me with a mix of salt and rosemary. She jumped back as a spark flared at her skin. I could smell the burning flesh as she cried out in pain and then tried again. Hey kid, a voice echoed from the ledge alongside the lighthouse. A homely looking man with sunken in dark eyes, pasty white skin, and rectangular black rimmed glasses came out from behind the rocks. He smiled as he got closer to the girl. He seemed friendly enough but I knew about his evil soul. He couldn't fool me. And now, finally, something might be done about his perversions against children and humanity. Every time a person got close to removing the filth from society, some lawyer would protect him. He hid his sins well, and it was about time he paid for them. Hey, little girl, what are you doing out on the beach? Are your parents around? I can help you find them. I cringed a little when I heard what he said. Everyone knew what he was. When he got closer to the child, she looked up at him and hissed, eyes glowing fiercely. He tried to run, but as he turned, he lost his footing in a large brownish-green clump of wet seaweed left from the earlier tide. The man fell to the ground, crying out, No. Help me. He looked in my direction. I smiled back and shrugged. The girl was upon him in seconds with sharp, new teeth gnashing at his neck. He screamed as he begged her to stop, but she tore at his flesh, 
with both long demon nails on her tiny hands and the long, sharp fangs in her mouth. I heard her giggle in delight when she latched on to the gaping hole in his neck that she made while pinning him to the sandy earth. His arms flailed for a moment, trying to pry her off his body, but the attempt only made her giggle more until his hands fell to his sides and she continued to take the life from him. I saw her stand up and smile at me. I felt she knew who he was for some reason, and I smiled back knowing that her victim would never touch another child again. Not taking my eyes from the evil little sprite, I watched a large shadow fly over her and the bloody mess beside her, its shape only appearing as the wind pushed the fog away to uncover the moon's light. I looked up to see a large bat descending down to the child and landing in front of me. I cowered and hid behind the railing but watched. The shadow became Augustus Alexander, the vampire who lived at the Miller Mansion. He looked over at me, nodded, then scooped the girl up in his arms and flew off into the night, leaving the mess of the real monster to be washed away in the next tide. Stay tuned for story number two. The Ursuline Convent Written by Lady Absu New Orleans is a city rich in the macabre. One cannot go far in the French Quarter without passing a site infamous for its ghost and or vampire lore. If ever there was a source for vampire stories, New Orleans would most assuredly be that source. One such destination is the old Ursuline Convent. Located a ways down on Charter Street, this three-story colonial masterpiece sits behind a high wall, accompanied by old Gothic iron gates and a lush courtyard. During the day, one can marvel at the beauty of the architecture and the landscape. It's actually quite pleasant. Completed around 1750, this place holds some of the most gruesome history around. Some of the history includes accounts of the first vampires to hit the New World. When New Orleans was still an establishing colony, the convent was a sanctuary for girls sent from France to help populate the colony. Much to their dismay, these girls would unknowingly be sent into the arms of vagrants and thieves usually never heard from by their families again. Legend has it that the King of France sent a group of hand-picked girls as part of the colony's assistance. These girls were the poorest of the poor in France, yet they must have had something special, for each girl was sent to New Orleans with these casket-shaped boxes of all different sizes. Presumably, it held their belongings though no one knows for sure what they brought with them on their journey. All that is certain is that after they arrived, the mortality rate skyrocketed. To be more precise, the infant mortality rate was highly affected. As far as their oddly shaped trousseaus, they were said to be stored on the third floor of the convent, not to be removed until each girl found the proper suitor. The problem is when they were removed, the caskets were found completely empty. The fear of what escaped those caskets brought the archdiocese 
to the convent, where they took all the caskets and locked them in the third floor storage area indefinitely. No one, and I mean no one, that isn't part of the tight-knit Vatican family is allowed inside the third floor of the convent to this day. Recently, I was told they rigged the only stairway leading to the third floor with high-tech motion, sensitive equipment. I mean, a mouse could set this thing off. If set off, the police will respond to the convent with high priority and will be on the scene within five minutes or less. There's no going up there, ever. As if that measure wasn't quite severe enough, they went further with the containment and sealed off all of the windows to the third floor, 800 screws each. And if you think that would definitely be the end all to their security measures, they had the Pope at the time bless each individual screw. That's 8,000 blessed screws total, keeping whatever is in the third floor hidden from the world. However, when confronted with these questions about the blessed screws, the Vatican denies ever having approved such a thing. However, I suppose anyone would deny their involvement in such a drastic measure, when even 8,000 blessings from the Pope doesn't keep the shutters from flying open on occasion in the middle of the night. Yep, you heard it correctly. For no reason at all, locals have reported seeing the shutters with the 800 blessed screws fly open with no problem. We have either some really shitty carpentry work here, or something more powerful than we can imagine is at play. There haven't been reports of what comes from these windows. The locals don't stay long enough to see, would you? Back in the 70s, a small group of paranormal researchers made their way back to New Orleans to look into the convent. Besides what you have read here, the stories continue with this place. Perhaps it was the Coffin Girl's story that brought them here. There is also an interesting story about the walls surrounding the convent. Some time ago, the city replaced the walls after they were found to be leaning into the street. Tearing them down, they found countless bones surrounding the walls. After some testing, they found all the bones belonged to infants housed in the covenant at the time when it was being used for an orphanage. Most assuredly, these infants fell victim to the plague at the time, although there was talk about creatures still locked away on the third floor. They definitely needed to eat on occasion, else they turned to the city for sustenance. It definitely could have been one of the reasons the researchers came to the convent. They took the formal tour of the place, though none could even find where steps leading to the third floor were. They asked the caretakers of the convent to see the third floor or even chat for a while about it, though they were met with suspicious looks and unkind words. Needless to say, they were kicked out for asking the wrong questions. That night, two of the four researchers left to search the quarter for a hotel, while the other two stayed technically camping out at the gates of the convent. Around 2 a.m., when the street activities died down and they were alone on the streets, they had gone hours without anything remotely interesting happening. Off guard, they engaged in quiet chat, 
not even noticing the shutters slowly opening right behind them. I assumed that bit only because when their bodies were found the next morning, there didn't seem to be evidence of much of a struggle. What was evident, however, was their bodies were completely exsanguated, with ripped wounds all over their drained bodies. An interesting fact I've learned in my research is that in the most pristine lab conditions, it's only humanly possible to remove about 70% of a person's blood supply before the veins collapse on themselves. Even hanging a person upside down and completely severing every major artery in the neck, you could not successfully and completely exsanguate a person. It begs the question, what is up there? What thing could possibly have the power to drain a person of their entire blood supply without eating them whole? The thing ever reported to come from those windows is an unnatural mist that tends to grow and completely surround the estate. It was a really foggy morning that day those two researchers were found as well, at least around the crime scene. If you're curious, as I was, you'd be surprised to know that those shutters were back in place before the police ever found the bodies. I've seen these shutters with my own eyes dozens of times through my trips to New Orleans. Only once did I see them open, and it was the last time I went to that block of Charger Street. In my foolish curiosity, I attempted the same camp out in front of the gates by myself. I feel the reader should know that I get myself into these situations a lot, and it usually ends up uneventful, even disappointing. I've gotten so used to disappointment that I fail to bring tools to document, like cameras and whatnot, so I apologize for my lack of proof. The best I can do is this retelling. Around midnight, a friend of mine who happened to be a local tour guide stopped by the convent on his way home after he saw me sitting and waiting patiently. He was talking about heading to one of the local bars to catch up until I told him of my plans. Keep in mind that this is the same guy who got me interested in the place to begin with. His friendly smile changed quickly to a confused frown. You think this is some sort of joke? He asked, almost insulted. We don't tell these stories to lure you into a death trap. We tell you these things to keep you away. We argued for a little while about how I need to learn to take warnings more seriously but I'm a hard-headed person, and after much persistence, he regrettably gave up. With sad, worried eyes, he told me he hoped to see me tomorrow. Then we would catch up. He didn't sound very confident, I thought, as I watched him disappear down the street to leave me with my thoughts. After a few hours, I was ready to give up and call it another failed night. I gathered my things and looked at my watch. 3.30 in the morning. I'm sure even the undead at this point need some sleep. I didn't even notice one of the shutters was creeping open. I walked a few steps before I noticed I was surrounded in a foggy mist. My heart sank when I saw the shutter. Then I watched every other shutter not only open, but fly open, like something exploded. At that point, the mist was pouring out of the windows like a rush of water. 
Terrified, I could only stare as this thick rolling fog poured down the sides of the convent and blanketed the courtyard inside. Then a slow, ascending hiss came all around me. My eyes darted, trying desperately to see through the thick blanket enveloping me. Nothing to see at all. Suddenly I was thrown face first into the iron gates. Unimaginable pressure built, pressing me harder into the gates. I felt my heart pounding in my throat, gasping for air as a large hand grasped the back of my head, pushing my throat into the bars. Look what they've done! A raspy voice hissed into my ear. I felt bits of moisture hit my cheek with each word and the stench of whatever this was. It was completely unbearable, nauseating. I couldn't answer it, though. I couldn't see anything anyway. Pressing my face even harder into the iron bars, I felt like my head was going to burst from the weight. Do you see? It hissed again, with that stench of rot swirling in my nose. All of a sudden, the mist in the courtyard cleared, and I saw them. Not clearly, like looking at four shadows. Then their eyes, impossibly black, opened and moved my way. I couldn't answer, couldn't breathe, my heart beating out of my chest. Then I felt it slowly breathe in, maybe smelling me. I'm not even sure at that point. Then, as naturally as a breeze, the pressure was gone. However, I found myself instantly in the middle of this hedge maze of courtyard in front of the convent. The shadows were surrounding me now. The one at my back swirled right around in front of me. Even this close, it was just a gray shadow with those big impossible black eyes and a crooked red wound-looking mouth. Looking into its eyes it was like looking into the eyes of a hungry tiger, its entire being taken over by a killer instinct, no convincing this thing to spare me. I shook like a scared rabbit, waiting for the instant of death by a swift predator. Then the madness of monstrous hisses and groans were instantly silenced by an elderly woman's voice. She screamed something at these things. Maybe in another language I couldn't tell. I was certain I was out of my mind when everything around me just disappeared. I was just there in the courtyard, looking like a scared idiot. And then I saw the source of that firm voice. A petite nun was standing there at the edge of the courtyard, looking back at me with disapproving eyes. She was adorned in an old-fashioned-looking habit, holding something that looked like a stick in her hand. You don't belong here, girl. Better get going, she said in a disappointed grandma voice. I didn't hesitate. She opened the gate for me to leave, the same one I was firmly pressed against not moments ago. I walked out, heard the gate slam close and lock. I turned around, wanting to at least thank the woman for saving me. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what happened, right? She was gone, though. I would imagine it would take an elderly woman some time to walk back through that huge courtyard. But sure enough, she was gone. When I looked up, the shutters were closed tight, 
like they'd never opened at all. That was enough for me. I was gone. There was no going back to talk to this nun, either, especially when I found out the next day there hadn't been nuns there for years. I left it alone, and though my risky death-wishy side wants me to go back with some cameras, I just logically won't. I've been back to New Orleans since then, but never there. I still see those eyes in the darkest parts of the night in my nightmares. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Are there vampires on the dark web? I know you think this might be a crazy topic, and I agree. I didn't believe it as well. A friend told me about a party she had gone to and told me about the strange happenings going on there. She said there were people drinking each other's blood like they were vampires, and that she had let someone do it to her. She said it was simply erotic and started going back every weekend like it was some kind of drug calling her name. She told me the name of the place. It was French, something like Havre de Song. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that correctly, but I put it into Google Translate and it really means Blood Haven. I couldn't get much information out of her. Every week, she came back to college looking a little less healthier than before. We had only one class together, so I assume she was attending all of the others, and I'm sure other people noticed it as well. On the last day that I saw her, the dark circles under her eyes were extreme, and she was so pale. I could even see the blue veins under her skin very clearly. The professor asked if she was okay, and she just smiled. It was then I noticed the left veneer fang in her mouth. I think it was a veneer. It had to be because her teeth were pretty normal before that. Are you okay? I asked her when the professor excused the class. Yeah, I'm fine. Why? She answered with her breath reeking of copper and decay. Are you still going to that club? She leaned in closer to me and gave a glance to the professor before answering. Yeah, now shh. No one can know about it. You look like shit, I said a little louder than expected. She smiled weakly, then grabbed her books and ran out of the classroom. I just shrugged and grabbed my books. The professor gave me a glare before I left, and I think I heard him say as I walked out of the door, Mind your own, Shell. That night I went home and decided to try to find out what she was talking about. I tried to search for every version of Avre de Song possible, and then, after learning it meant Bloodhaven, I searched for that as well. After about an hour of no luck finding any such phrase at all, I decided to get my studies done for the week. I really didn't have a lot of time to spend sleeping, 
so I knew just secure for my little fatigue problem. I opened my Tor browser and clicked the link into the dark web to get some uppers that I've had a hard time finding on the surface web ever since they started keeping track of pharmacy sales. I'm not ADHD or anything like that, but the stuff really does help me stay awake to study for exams. I can't get it through a doctor because I'm not ADHD, but I can buy it with confidence from a certain hookup on the dark web. I normally only go to their sites, but today I came across a really strange banner at the bottom of their page. The banner read, You don't need drugs to stay awake forever. Dash TVC. A little too excited, I clicked on the link which took me to a black screen with deep red letters that resembled dripping blood. The query said, Are you over 18? And I clicked yes. Another link popped up that said, Are you a Fed? Of course I clicked no. Wouldn't they? Then another button popped up with the text, Click to enter, but do not tell anyone you have been warned. I clicked the button and waited for about 30 seconds before the next window popped up. This window was a bit disturbing. It was a picture of a naked woman and a man dressed in all black. He was looking directly at the camera while holding the woman close to him. Blood was dripping down her neck and off her breast, then onto the floor. He was smiling. Blood dripped down from his bottom lip and from the two prominent fangs that protruded from his gums. There was no way this was real. There were no such things as vampires. But I went ahead and clicked the continue button anyway. A window popped up with the words, WELCOME HUMAN, in all caps and a video started to play. There were people in a room dancing and what looked like blood squirting out from small holes in the walls. From one corner, a young woman was pulled from a cage screaming. She tried to stand her ground, but the floor was so slick and wet that she horrifically slid along as a large man in a white blood-stained shirt and black pants pulled her through the crowd. As he passed the camera, dragging her along, he gave one quick smile and a wink. It was the man from the original picture. At first he was very handsome, but as he passed his eyes glowed red and his face snarled up like a hungry demon. He gave out one loud laugh as he pulled the woman to a large tank. She screamed as he grabbed her and sunk his long, enormous fangs into her jugular as she collapsed into his arms and began rubbing her blood-soaked body all over his. He held up his middle finger toward me with an incredibly long fingernail, then sliced her from the neck down to her pelvis with his nail. As her guts began tumbling from her abdomen and blood gushed from her center, the other vampires, or whatever they were, circled around her and knelt down around her body to catch the blood now flowing in all directions. The man grabbed her intestines and held them toward the camera, laughing in victory and taking a large bite from them as her screams gurgled down into nothing. Then the camera flashed off and another of what I assumed would only be another actor appeared.
Did you like the show? He looked straight at me through the lens. I felt warm inside like he was actually looking at me. I don't understand. This was a show? I said dumbly into my screen, thinking he actually would answer me or hear me. And yet, he did. Oh, yes. Do you think we could actually get away with this? Moments later, the woman who was torn apart came stumbling out of the other room and laughing with the other men. She was still naked but completely clean. The others had clothes on that still looked bloodstained. Come play, she cooed into the camera, then waltzed off into another doorway. The main vampire held up a business card and I quickly snapped a picture with my phone. I didn't know what was going on, but this was all an act, and a fun one at that. I wanted to see what it was all about. Tomorrow night at 11 p.m., be here. You must have $100 at the door, or you won't be able to get in, the man said, and then the screen went dark. Honestly, I couldn't sleep that night. I wondered what would happen if I actually did go to the location given to me on the card. All night I tossed and turned thinking about it and wondering what it would be like to experience such a cosplay event. I decided the next night I was going to grab a hundred bucks out of the ATM and head on over to the place. Why not? It was all fake, right? I went to class the next day and then stopped by the bank after. Instead of only $100, I took out 400 and grabbed a cab to the next city over. I didn't know if there was going to be drinking involved or what, and leaving my car in the city downtown wasn't acceptable to me. Once there, I decided to get a hotel room and then some black hair dye and makeup at the drugstore. I also stopped by a thrift store and picked up some really cool clothes that made a great goth costume and that afternoon at the hotel I put together my masterpiece. Once I arrived, around 10 to 11 p.m., they greedily took the 520s from my hand and stamped my arm with the stamp of the devil on the inside of my right wrist. I'm not sure what the significance of that was, I suppose, so it didn't get washed off when I went to the restroom. As I entered the room, I noticed the walls were completely white and the floors were covered in dark red carpets. Tables lined the walls and the floor was bare, allowing for dancing. The tank in the corner was empty. I went to the back and ordered some of the house's special red wine and found a seat at an empty table near the exit. I cringed as I tasted the wine. It was definitely wine, but it had a strange coppery taste to it, like blood. I tried to act as if I enjoyed it, and as I consumed the contents of the glass, the lights dimmed and people started coming out of the red curtains in the back. They were dressed all in black clothes that were really tight. Their eyes were black with red irises and lips stained red. One smiled at me and his fangs protruded from the red slots of his lips. For a moment I was lost in his gaze until he looked away. It was unnerving, to say the least. They all picked a partner to dance with, and he picked me. I stood, feeling a little woozy from what I supposed was the wine, and began dancing with a strange man. 
He ran his hands up and down my body and pulled me close with his long arms like snakes wrapped around my whole body. I felt his tongue against my neck and then burning. As his teeth pierced my skin, I wanted to scream, but something had a hold of my voice. As he continued to suck the blood from my neck, I fell into his arms. I remember there was screaming next. Another person was being dragged to the tank, and as they cuffed her feet and hung her upside down and lowered her into the pit, they cut her wrists and neck as the blood poured from her body and the remains were discarded. Then one after the other were lowered into the tank upside down by their feet and discarded after their bodies were exsanguated. I didn't know if it was real or not, nor did I care at that point. All I wanted was his lips upon my neck, and as if to read my mind, he just kept going. Soon the tank was full and the walls started spurting out the red liquid. It splashed on my face as I licked my lips. I knew it was blood, and I liked it. I fell into the stranger's arms, and I only remember him picking me up and bringing me to a room in the back where he removed my clothes and washed me off, then covered me with a blanket. The next morning my clothes were as clean as when I purchased them and sat next to my bed with a rose. Come back soon. I want to taste you again, was written on the note. At this point, I have no idea if any of it was real or if they gave me drugs to make me hallucinate. I do know that I have two puncture wounds in my neck and I am going back again tonight for I am drawn to the place. I feel a little faint, and I felt the need to eat a lot of meat today. It seemed to give me strength, and pushed me toward the door to another night at the Blood Haven. If you do see this online on the dark web, do not attempt to go there, for it will capture you, and you will not be free of its clutches. I hope they do not read this, for I do not know what will happen to me if it is found out that I told their secret to everyone but I must warn you not to go there. That is all I will say as I'm putting on these goth clothes and getting ready to head out the door. The Werewitch of the Howling Woods by the Vesper's Bell After several days and hundreds of miles of traveling by stagecoach, Thorogood had finally arrived at his long-dreaded destination of Fog's Dwelling. It was a drab and auspicious little frontier town built upon the very edges of the Howling Woods, a fabled old-growth forest that had stood as the northernmost border of the realm for time immemorial. Thorogood was awed by his first sight of that mythically primeval forest, as it was compromised of some of the tallest pine trees known to exist. They seemed as tall as the hills themselves, reaching up towards the clouds and they had grown together so tightly that, from a distance, at least, they appeared to have formed a nigh-impenetrable border between the civilized realm of Wicked Ire and the primeval savagery beyond. It was a border that the folk of Fog's Dwelling had dared to challenge through, or rather the Grand Priestess had dared to challenge it, and the poor folk she had sent to settle the region had not dared to challenge her. The Howling Woods were too rich with timber to be ignored any longer, especially when the oracles had divined that the revenants of the Forsaken Coast were growing in number. 
A great fleet of warships was required to deter and defend against any potential invasion from the east. Funny how the prophecies of the oracles always seemed to support the Grand Priestess's agenda. Thoroughgood mused. As a result of the dangers posed by the ancient forest, Fog's dwelling was built more like a military fort than a town, with the entire perimeter encircled by a wall of thick logs with sharpened ends. A gallery ran the entire circumference of the interior so that guards could keep watch, though at night all they could hope to see was the eyeshine of lurking predators. The only way was a dual set of reinforced gates that faced away from the forest and towards the wide stretch of empty moorland that separated them from the rest of the realm. Those gates had only opened for Thoroughgood's stagecoach after the guards had confirmed an all-clear and had slammed shut the instant they were through. The town itself lacked any stone buildings at all, with everything being made entirely of wood from the forest. Thoroughgood supposed that made sense, since they would have had a surplus of the latter and a near total deficit of the former. It did seem a fire hazard, though, especially since they were clustered so tightly together, but presumably the cold and damp climate helped with that. The stagecoach rolled to a stop in front of the Foggy Lantern Tavern, where Thoroughgood would be lodging during his stay in Fogg's dwelling. He tipped the porter and bid his farewell to the coachman as he headed inside the tavern, hoping that his contact was waiting for him inside, as he promised. His entrance into the tavern didn't go unnoticed. Dressed in a brocade frock coat and a silk cravat, his fair blonde hair tied back in a ponytail with a satin ribbon, he stood out like an unhammered nail amidst the rustic working-class patrons. Thoroughgood, a deep voice called out to him from the back corner of the room. Sitting there was a tall, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested man with a thick black beard. Ah, yes, hello. I am Royal Scholar Odidius Thoroughgood of Evanhill, here on behalf of Her Eminence's Hallowed Society for Thermotergy, Alchemy, and Natural Philosophy. You must be Mr. Faxton. Delighted to make your acquaintance, Thorough said cordially, greeting him with a curt bow. Rather than get up from his seat and return the bow, Faxon stuck out his hand. Thoroughgood hesitated for just a moment, but considering that his assignment required Faxon's cooperation, not to mention his significant size advantage, Thoroughgood capitulated and shook the man's hand. Have a seat, young man, Faxon said, his gruff voice making it sound more like an order than an invitation. Thoroughgood complied once more, wiping his hand off with his handkerchief as discreetly as he could. The rickety table shook slightly as a barmaid plopped a wooden tankard of ale down in front of him. Thoroughgood noticed that the woman's bare arms were tattooed, and though he had only glanced at them briefly, he had thought that they had looked thaumaturgical in nature. Magical tattoos on a serving girl would certainly have been unusual, and he attempted to call her back so that he could get a better look. Oh, uh, Miss... Miss... Could I actually get a... Whatever fancy wine you're hankering for, we ain't got it. We only got what we can brew, and this isn't exactly vineyard country. It's beer or nothing, Faxon informed him. Thoroughgood gave a resigned nod and took a reluctant sip of the ale, deciding to leave the mystery of the tattoos for later. So you've come all the way out here just to get a look-see at the real lycanthrope up close, have you? 
Did I say that right? Lycanthrope? That's the fancy name you types like to call him, isn't it? Yes, that's correct, Mr. Faxon, but I'm fine with calling them turnskins or whatever else you prefer. Thorogood nodded. As discussed in her letters, her eminence is increasingly concerned about the steady rise in lichen attacks along the frontier. She's concerned about her timber supply, and that's about it, Faxon scoffed. We're pushing harder into their territory, and they're pushing back harder. It doesn't take a royal scholar to understand that, does it? Yes, clearly an increase in the population along the frontier, as well as the expansion of the frontier deeper into the Howling Woods, is a factor in the increase in lichen attacks, Thorogood conceded. But the frequency and number of these attacks are still excessive based on our prior surveys of the lycanthrope population. For Eminence's main concern, one which I share and the one I've come to investigate, is that the lichens are breeding. Faxton let out a hearty belly laugh, slapping his palm onto the table so hard it nearly toppled over, sending ale sloshing everywhere. Breeding? And how would that work? The Turnskins are all outlaws who ran off into the Howling Woods, he said. Well, Mr. Faxton, there are women outlaws, and seeing as how most of their male compatriots would hardly have been gentlemen even before being turned into literal wolves, mating seems like an inevitability, Thorogood answered. Mating, sure, I'll grant you that, but not breeding, Faxton said. I may not be as learned as yourself, Mr. Thorogood, but I do know that you can't breed a mule. If a cross between a horse and a donkey is sterile, then surely a wolfman wouldn't have to worry about feeding a litter of pups. That's a valid observation, and it may well turn out to be the case. But if the lycanthropes are breeding, it's of the utmost importance that we uncover the truth, Thorogood insisted. He leaned in now so that he might speak a little quieter. A plague of lycanthropy has always been a terrifying possibility, if a remote one. Contagions that spread solely through the sharing of bodily fluids do so slowly, especially when the infected are unable to pass for uninfected. No one's ever caught lycanthropy from a courtesan, I can assure you. The shunning of lichens to the wilderness or culling their numbers has always been sufficient to control outbreaks. But if they are breeding and passing on their lycanthropy to their offspring, then that presents a possibility for exponential population growth, and with it the capacity to utterly overwhelm our defenses. All of Whittakire could either be slaughtered or turned in an unspeakably short period of time. If they are breeding, then we must know and begin preparations for a full-on extermination immediately, before it's too late. According to your letters, you've located a den, is that correct? It is, Faxton nodded. It's around nine miles into the forest. They're nocturnal, so the woods are safe enough to travel by day. But sticking your head inside a lichen's den just to see if they've got a fresh litter still sounds like suicide to me. That might be it, but it's a risk I have to take to find the truth, Thorogood agreed, taking another slow though clearly not savory sip from his tankard. Tell me, Mr. Faxton, if you know where their den is, why have you never tried to wipe them out? Faxton chuckled dismissively at the suggestion. Have you ever actually seen a turnskin, Mr. Thorogood? he asked. 
Well, there are taxidermized specimens in the hall of... So, no, then he cut him off. Well, me and everyone else in this town has seen them. Usually far closer than we'd like to. We see them skulking in the trees, eyes glowing in the dark, waiting for us to let our guard down and pick one of us off. We hear them howling, sometimes from miles away, sometimes from right outside the town wall, and on more than one occasion from inside them. They're bigger, faster, and stronger than any man, even me, and their hides are thick. Silver bullets work, but as poison. It's a slow death and they can still do quite a bit of damage before they kill over. If the entire town were to march to the den and take on the whole pack of their turf, it would be a massacre. Even if we succeeded, it would be with half of us dead and half of the survivors turned, which the other half would then have to deal with. So what would be the bleeding point? When you fight a turnskin, you don't just risk death. You risk becoming a turnskin and perpetuating the cycle yourself, which is why we only ever fight them when we have to. The Grand Priestess is mad if she thinks that an extermination effort would have a chance in hell at working. We need to withdraw from the frontier altogether, treat the Moors as a no-man's land, and the turnskins will be contained to the howling woods just as they always have been, which would be a perfectly viable option were it not for our pressing need for timber, Thorogood reminded him, Faxon sighed in what would have seemed like resignation, were it not for the sudden look of pity in his eyes. We'll see if you still feel that way after tomorrow, he said forebodingly. I suggest you turn in early, Mr. Thorogood. We set out for the den at first light. The next morning it was clear why Faxon had said first light, and not at sunrise as a perpetually foggy and overcast weather rendered the sun little more than a mist. The gray, damp fog was so thick, Thorogood couldn't even see the tops of the trees, let alone the sky. Both men were dressed in long leather coats, tall boots, and wide-brimmed hats as they ventured beyond the relative safety of the town walls. Each carried a silver-tipped cutlass at their hips and a torch-topped walking stick in their hands. Multiple flintlocks loaded with silver bullets were slung upon their bandoliers, and Faxton had a large blunderbuss hoisted over his shoulder. Thorogood would have preferred a more sizable retinue for his escort, but even if he could have spared the gold, Fogg's dwelling couldn't spare the men. On such a dangerous frontier, a community needed every able body it had to ensure its survival. And there were already none too happy about Faxton having to risk his life just to justify the Grand Priestess's curiosity. Remember, stay alert. If any turnskins are prowling the howling at this time of day, between the trees and fog we'll hear them long before we see them. Faxton cautioned as they took their first steps along the tree line, officially leaving civilization behind them. The good news is that they don't hunt men for food unless they're starving. And if they see we're armed, they won't risk a confrontation without the advantage of numbers on their side. We shouldn't have to worry about that until we reach the den. Stay as quiet as you can. And whatever you do, don't leave my sight. If we get separated, it's a hundred to one shot that you'll find your way out before dark. Thorogood didn't doubt it. 
All the giant trees looked more or less the same to him, and the canopy would have made navigating by the sun or stars impossible if the unyielding clouds hadn't done so already. The terrain at least was manageable enough, since the howling woods had very little undergrowth. The great pines had greedily kept all the sun, water, and soil for themselves, leaving precious little for anything else. A thick carpet of dead brown needles was mostly all that covered the forest floor. It was also eerily quiet. They hadn't been walking more than a quarter of an hour before the sheer silence of it had Thorogood thoroughly unsettled. I must say, this forest is rather more desolate than I was expecting, he remarked. You say that the lichens only eat men when they're starving? From what I've seen so far, that can't be that uncommon of an occurrence. There's elk and the like that feed on tree bark and anything that does manage to sprout up, and grazing beasts out on the moors. Turnskins can easily travel over a hundred miles in a night in search of prey, Faxon informed him not bothering to turn around, and their skilled hunters with keen senses capable of picking up the slightest trails or smelling prey from miles away. They know how to survive in their own woods, don't you fret. You almost sound like you admire them, Thorogood remarked. I respect them as apex predators. We're the invaders here, looking to chop down their trees to make warships so we can invade someone else. They're just trying to survive. And you can't deny that they're very good at that, Faxton replied. You sounded far less respectful when we were discussing the prospect of taking on an entire pack of them, Thorogood reminded him. Last night you made it sound like they were monsters. I was trying to scare you, hoping you'd realize what a fool's errand this was and head back to where you came from, Faxton told him. Everything's a monster from something's point of view. These trees are monsters to the plants struggling to survive while they hoard most of the available resources. That doesn't make the trees evil or mean they have no right to exist. Enough talk. Footsteps might go ignored or unrecognized by the turnskins, but our voices won't. Don't say anything unless it's of vital importance. Thorogood nodded, even though Faxon was facing away from him, and they made the rest of their trek in silence. It wasn't until they'd been hiking for nearly another three hours that the eerily and near-absolute quiet was finally broken. A long, baleful howl pierced through the air, seeming to shake the floating droplets of fog as it did so. Thorogood had heard wolf howls before, but this was obviously no wolf howl. It was deeper, more guttural, and more resonant like the creature that made it was significantly larger than a wolf. The howling was also coming from above them, and Thorogood had yet to meet a wolf that could climb a tree. He froze in his tracks, and his heart nearly froze in his chest. He looked to Faxon for instruction, who held up a finger to urge him to remain silent. To Thorogood's utter dismay, Faxon then cupped his hands to his mouth and produced a howl of his own a perfect mimic of the one that had come from the treetops. The fog-cloaked lichen let out a much shorter howl in response, and Thorogood heard it, leaping through the canopy boughs away from them. We can talk now. They know we're here. Talking won't make any difference, Faxon said. Why aren't they attacking? Thorogood demanded in a whispered tone, 
that was too loud to actually be considered a whisper, bumbling to draw one of his pistols. I told you, they only eat men when they're starving. They won't attack unless they think we're a threat. So put that damn thing away, Faxon ordered. The den's dead ahead. Keep your voice calm and low, and don't make any sudden threatening moves. Thuruga didn't need Faxon's woodcraft to tell them that they were close to the den. Bones of the various creatures were strewn about the forest floor, all of them picked clean of flesh, with the larger ones broken and sucked dry of marrow. The bark of the trees had been furiously scratched in some sort of territorial display, and the smell of death hung heavily in the air. As they marched forward, shapes began appearing in the fog, far too small to be pine trees, but at the same time far too large to be lichens. Peering harder into the mist, he saw that they were monoliths, ancient monoliths, weather-worn and moss-covered, with deep, curvilinear runes etched into them. They were twelve feet tall, semi-ellipsoid in shape, and had hexagonal holes chiseled into their top ends. They formed a ring of a hundred feet across, and the ground within was a shallow depression, three feet deep, and the center of the ring was a large hexagonal stone slab, one that looked suspiciously like a sacrificial altar. What the bloody hell is this? Thurgood demanded as he grabbed Faxon by the arm. It's the den. See? He pointed to the opposite pit, where a wide tunnel had been dug into the ground, framed with branches and larger stones. The den is inside of an ancient Ophionic megalith that's inexplicably in the middle of the Howling Woods. You didn't think that was worth mentioning? Thurgood cried. I didn't, honestly. It's an old country. There are ruins all over the place. Some are bound to have some squatters, Faxton shrugged. So now that you see it for yourself, what's the plan? I'm afraid that I haven't been entirely forthright with you, Mr. Faxton, Thurgood sighed as he unslugged his rucksack. Obviously, no one in their right mind would expect to be able to walk into a den full of live lichens and survive. That's why I brought this. He carefully unwrapped a small ceramic grenade with a silvery wick sticking out of the top. This is filled with a solution of silver nitrate. When it explodes, the solution will instantly vaporize into a gas that will be highly toxic to lichens, especially when they're all confined to their din like that. The gas will immediately get into their eyes, nose, and throat, causing incapacitating pain, occluded vision, and smell, impaired breathing, and eventually suffocation. Once they're dead, we survey their bodies and ideally drag one back with us if we can manage it. Faxton stoically glowered down at the small explosive, his expression cold and stern but otherwise unreadable. So that's the priestess's plan for exterminating the turnskins then, is it? He asked. Find their dens and then gas them to death in their sleep. You said it yourself, Faxton. Any sort of honorable warfare favors the lichens. Those they don't kill, they turn. What choice do we have? leave them be? Faxon replied quietly. If that's what you came here to do, then get on with it. I'll watch your arse from up here, but that's it. I'm not doing the priestess's dirty work. Thorogood nodded understandingly and made his descent into the stone ring. Once he was down, he first lit the torch on top of his walking stick 
and then very cautiously approached the den. Unlike the surrounding area, the circle itself had been kept meticulously clean, almost as if the lichens had some conception of its sanctity. Thorogood quickly dismissed the notion, deciding that they simply had some instinctual drive to keep the den entrance clean of anything that might attract scavengers. He came to a complete stop when he reached the den's entrance, peering into it in a vain attempt to try and get a sense of its internal dimensions. The entrance was a black abyss, though, and Thorogood had no way of knowing how deep in the lichens were, or even if there were multiple tunnels. It was possible that just tossing the grenade into the den wouldn't be enough to kill all of them. If he tried going in himself, though, he would almost certainly be ambushed and killed before he ever had a chance to light it. Accepting it as the least risky option, Thorogood lipped the grenade and threw it in as hard as he could into the den. To his surprise, he heard it shatter against something solid before igniting. The plumes of smoke rising out of the entrance proved that the den couldn't have been very deep, and yet he didn't hear a single lichen howling in pain, nor did any come running out of the den. Perplexed, he cautiously moved through the thinning smoke and dared to enter the den, holding his torch out as far from him as he could. He hadn't gone more than a few steps when he saw what the grenade had smashed into. It was a door. A wide wooden door clearly made from the pine trees that surrounded them, but undeniably much younger than the stone circle above them. He tried to open it, but found it was barred from the other side. Faxton! Thorogood shouted as he ran back into the stone circle. Mr. Faxton, there appears to be some sort of a... a... He trailed off, his attention suddenly stolen by the sight of over a dozen lichens standing around the perimeter of the circle, staring down at him. They were nearly seven feet tall when they stood to their full height, though many of them were hunched, stooped, or crouched on all fours. They were lean and muscular, with unretractable claws on digitigrade feet and long, splayed hands. Their dark, coarse fur was black, brown, gray, and even auburn and their hungry eyes shone either red, gold, or green. Their snouts were short, and their teeth were long, longer and sharper than that of any natural creature that dwelt in those woods. Thorogood turned, and standing over the dense entrance where he had emerged, there was a woman with a wild mane of swept-back raven hair, and the same amber eyes as some of the lichens had. Her sun-brown skin was covered in dark green tattoos that mimicked the curvilinear runes of the megalith, and Thorogood realized those were the same tattoos he had seen on the barmaid the previous night. She was naked save for a golden talisman around her neck, bearing the triple crescent moon icon of the Covenhood. She was also filthy, with hips that were so wide and breasts that were so large and pendulous they looked more like they belonged on some ancient fertility idol than a living woman. Her lips twisted upwards in a snarl, bearing an inhuman set of carnivorous teeth. She had a lichen knelt to either side of her, and she rested her hands upon their heads as if they were common dogs. The scene was so horrifying and surreal, 
He didn't notice Faxon standing beside them until he spoke. I'm afraid I wasn't entirely forthright with you either, Mr. Thorogood, he said, his blunderbuss at the ready to put Thorogood down in an instant, should he have the need. What the bloody hell is this? Thorogood demanded. And who is she? My name is Lamestra, and I am the den mother to this pack of lichens. She said in a voice that had an unnatural yet feral timber to it. Before that, I was a witch. So I guess that makes me a werewitch then, doesn't it? Nope, were means man. A werewitch would be a warlock, Thorogood said sardonically. If he was going to die, he might as well die of correcting people's etymological errors. What the devil do you mean, den mother? I was banished from the sisterhood for my numerous unorthodoxies. And like many outcasts, I fled to the howling woods to escape the law. She replied, listlessly scratching her Rubenesque belly with her wolf-like claws. I knew I couldn't survive for long on my own, so I used my talents at Theriomancy to persuade a pack of lichens to take me in. When my sisters rejected me, those creatures took me in as one of their own. I knew that it would only be a matter of time before I became infected myself and not wanting to completely lose my human facilities, I set to work designing these. She gestured to the thaumaturgical tattoos that covered much of her body. These let me shift between forms at will, and while I admit I'm certainly a little more primal than what I used to be, I'm still by far the smartest lycanthrope in these woods. With a mind of a woman and the magic of a witch, and now the strength of a lichen, this forest is my domain. When the Grand Priestess sent your people to invade my woods, my first impulse was to destroy them. However, as I spied upon them from the woods and plotted my next move, I realized that they too were outcasts and hated the Grand Priestess as much as I did. They weren't invaders, they were refugees. So I decided to be a magnanimous queen and extend an offer of amnesty instead. Amnesty? Thurgood asked. Her tattoos. She taught us how to make them. Let us keep our human minds in human forms, but able to change skins when need be, Faxon explained. Fogs dwelling in all its people now recognize Lamaestra is our sovereign, and we won't hesitate to use the gifts she's given us to defend her woods. Any invaders who surrender can either retreat and receive the link themselves, but those who don't will either be slaughtered or join our ranks as traditional wolf-minded lichens. And if the Grand Priestess still won't relent, then I'll send my people to covertly spread the lycanthropy throughout her realm and bring it down from the inside returning all of Wickedire to a state of primeval nature. Lymestra added, And you, Mr. Thorogood, who came here to cowardly murder us in our sleep, you will now join our pack without the benefit of my tattoos to make up for your treachery, if you survive the transformation, of course. Some of the lichens began growling and slowly crawled down into the ring. Thorogood pulled out a pistol and tried to shoot, only to find that Faxton hadn't loaded his guns. It didn't have to be this way, Thorogood, 
Thaxon laminated. You could have walked away. Thorogood didn't seem to be feeling especially repentant, however, refusing to forsake the cause he had sworn his life to. The guns may have been useless, but the cutlass was real. Throwing his walking stick to the ground and drawing his sword, he charged for the lichens, standing ahead of him, ready to strike them down with his silver blade. He never got the chance. As he was pounced on from behind and knocked to the ground, the lycanthrope wasting no time in digging its teeth into his shoulder. As he screamed in pain, the entire pack howled in celebration of his infection. Story number two, The Vampire of Sandcastle, by Spooky Boo Rhodes. The Vampire of Sandcastle. I remember the last time I felt the sun upon my skin. It started on a night like this one. The moon was full, and I had nothing better to do than drive out to the coast with my friends. Growing up in Northern California isn't all it's cracked up to be. The beaches are usually cold, and it can be extremely crowded. But for people between the ages of 18 to 20, there is absolutely nothing to do. You're too old to hang out with the other kids and too young to go to the bars. High school kids are totally beneath you, and getting into bars was extremely difficult. Okay, for me it wasn't difficult, but for my friends they couldn't. So instead, we found some sucker every weekend to buy us some booze, making him think that he could drink with us. Then we would ditch him. It wasn't anything new. We did it all of the time. Guys are easy to manipulate if they think they're going to get laid or have a one-track mind. That was then. I heard kids had it harder now. It's probably a good thing, though. As you will see, underage drinking at the beach can get you into a lot of trouble. I was about to turn 21 at the time. My birthday was in one month. One stupid month. I could have been having the time of my life somewhere at a bar in Sandcastle with my fake ID, but instead, since my friends were incapable of faking anything, we decided to buy a few bottles of JD and party on the beach in the dark. As we sat on the old log we often partied on, the waves crashed against the shore. The water didn't quite reach the log yet, and the tide was low, so we were pretty safe from the depths of the Pacific until around 2 a.m., when we would be leaving anyway. That was the only thing we were afraid of. I unscrewed the top of the cheap rum we conned the guy to buy us at the liquor store, while I heard the pop of a can of soda my friend Jenny opened. She poured the coke into the first red cup and handed it to me. I filled the rest of it with the sweet golden nectar, and then passed it to Priscilla, who passed it to Tammy, and so on. The teenage alcohol assembly line went on until my cup was the last. Of course, I knew how much to fill for me. I was the heaviest drinker out of our whole group, even when the guys showed up. Mmm, this is perfect, Roxy, Tammy said as she sipped on the rum and coke. Like you know how to do it right every time. Practice, you know. I laughed and started to sip my own drink. Rum and coke was our favorite out of any. When the guys came with us, they always wanted beer. So boring. 
Tonight was girls' night out, and we picked what we wanted to drink, as we always did. But it was easier to grab the alcohol when the guys weren't around because men were so easy to get to buy it for us. Lori suddenly stood up and pointed toward the trail to the parking lot. Who's that guy over there? Doesn't he look like... The guy that bought us the booze, I continued for Lori, who was then focusing on the stranger from the liquor store. How in the hell did he find us? Lori asked as he sauntered over closer. We were really good at ditching the guys, as we knew all of the back roads to the beach. If we ever suspected one was following, there was always a side road we could take to go the opposite direction. No one ever found our party spot until now. He wore a long black coat and black leather boots. His faded jeans were almost gray, but you could tell they were worn. The jacket was buttoned up almost to his neck, but it looked like he sported a Victorian Gothic shirt underneath. His dark eyes and black hair were just as dreamy as they were at the liquor store, and he immediately caught my attention. I felt like I could read his thoughts, and they weren't very pleasant. He half smirked when he put one leather boot on the log and leaned in with his elbow on his knee and his hand under his chin. Hello, ladies. The words rolled off his tongue like the love song of a fine rock ballad. I took a deep breath and watched as he licked his lips. He wanted something that was clear, but there were five of us and I was packing heat, so there was no way he could get away with anything. I took my revolver everywhere with me. It was a small gift from my grandfather before he passed away. It was only a six-shooter, but it would still do the job if needed. Still, those dark eyes and shaggy black hair had me intensely mesmerized. I took a deep breath and gripped the pistol in my pocket. How did you find us? It wasn't difficult. Five beautiful women in a 68 Camaro driving out to the coast. I could smell the sweet scent of your skin. He was suddenly beside me. The tips of his fingers made me shake as he brushed them against my cheek and neck. I shivered inside, but not from the cold. It was something from within. A need I couldn't understand. A desire that came from the depths of my soul. My friends were suddenly standing all around him. Tammy was kneeling at his leg while Lori hung onto his arm. Jenny was pulling on the other arm and Susie wrapped her arms around his waist. He laughed as they all began to run their hands up and down his body while I still sat on alert, my right hand on the butt of the gun in my pocket. So weak they are, aren't they? He gave a chuckle before leaning into Lori's neck and tearing a hole deep into her throat, ripping out her jugular with his teeth. Blood sprayed out all over him, and my friends, yet they didn't even seem to care. Lori dropped to the ground as he ripped his nails into Jenny's chest. Her still-beating heart was pulsing in his hand when he, she fell to the ground. You bastard! I screamed as the gun went off in my pocket. The bullet sunk deep into his chest, but he didn't fall. He laughed as he pushed his fingers inside his torso and pulled out the bloody bullet, the crimson liquid dripping from his fingers. I took another shot at his leg as he simply snapped Susie's neck and let her fall to the ground. Another bullet ripped out of my six-shooter and hit his shoulder. I was aiming for his face, but at that point I was shaking too much. 
He stared at me and shook his head. Kill me already! I stepped back into the surf. I didn't realize the tide had moved in so close. It couldn't be that late so soon, but the water was moving in. Did you think it would be that easy? He cooed at me with a voice that sung in my ears and made me tremble. What are you? The stranger was instantly at my side, caressing my cheek and kissing my mouth. I could taste the blood from Lori's neck on his lips. He dipped his face into the base of my neck, letting his razor-sharp teeth pierce my skin. He held me close to his body, and I could feel his pulse against my breast. As the life left my body, he pulled me gently against him and said, I don't want to kill you, Roxy. I want to use you. As my arms dropped to my sides, I could hear my heart slowing and pounding in my ears. The stars were brighter than I had ever seen, and as my eyes closed, I wish I could see them one more time before I died. I felt the cold ocean water brush against my skin as the stranger gently placed me on the sand. Tears welled in the corner of my eyes. I knew it would be my last night alive. So stupid to trust a stranger. All I could think of as I slowly drifted away was the thirst I craved. I wanted, no, needed, to drink. With great effort, I rolled over in the sand and tried to drink the salt water, but just choked it out as it went down my throat. The laughter above me reminded me of the stranger. Are you thirsty, pet? He cupped his hand behind my head and pulled me up to rest on his knee. My eyes fluttered open and I looked at him with disgust. Just let me die. No, pet. You are going to live like I do, he said as he bit into his wrist. You will live forever and in the night. I've been looking for you for a lifetime, and I'm not ready to give you up so easily. I wanted to move, scream, do anything, as the blood from his wrist drizzled onto my lips, but I was too weak. As the dark fluid trickled into my mouth and on my tongue, my body ached and flushed with need. He smiled as he pushed his wrist over my mouth. Eagerly, I latched on to the wound and began to weakly suck the blood from his wrist. Suddenly, I was very, very hungry. A low thump echoed in my head as I looked around like a rabid animal. The sound was coming from Susie. She laid there, her neck broken, but very much alive. Her lower lip quivered with fear as I crawled toward her. I could see in her eyes that I terrified her, but I couldn't stop myself. From her bruised and broken neck, I tore into the flesh of her skin and began to fill my body back with the life that he stole from me. Drink, my pet, drink. Susie slowly stopped breathing as I consumed her life into mine, and when I felt replenished, I stood feeling more energy than I had in a lifetime. I looked at the stranger and laughed. <laughs> I'm not your pet. He stepped over to me, his black hair wisping in the wind and those incredible dark eyes staring right into me. I wanted to buckle down in his presence, but I wouldn't. I couldn't. He murdered my friends, and whatever the hell he did to me, I couldn't change. He grabbed me and kissed Susie's blood from my lips and wiped my chin with his thumb. You're going to be a fun one, pet. 
I pushed him away and knelt next to the bodies of my dead friends. He watched me as I stripped off my clothes, and as I dropped the bloodied cloth beside the other girls, I cried. I figured someone would find my clothes next to my friends if they weren't washed out to sea first, and think I was abducted. I didn't want them to think I did it. I'm so sorry. I sobbed as I grabbed whatever cash was available in their wallets and walked naked up the beach. Where are you going? The stranger strolled beside me, almost floating. <laughs> Anywhere from you. You need me. He stepped in front of me, not letting me pass. Strangely enough, I did need him, and deep inside I knew it. I would die alone with whatever he did to me. What the hell is this? Vampires? There's no such thing. It couldn't be. They're not real. Yes, vampires are real, and you are now one. The stranger took off his long black leather jacket and wrapped it around my naked body. Bullshit. I accepted the coat, not wanting to draw attention to myself. How do you think you're still alive, Roxy? You murdered my friends. You didn't need those friends. <laughs> they were stopping you from greatness. You should hear what they say behind your back about your aspirations. Have you been following us? He laughed. For quite some time. They were jealous, and you knew it, but you put up with it. Why? <laughs> those bitches were just like me. There was no one else to hang out with because no one else was like us. That's why. Good. Still the little snot you were before. You'll need that because you'll get hungry again. I stopped and looked at him, then ran my fingers in his thick black hair while looking at his dark eyes. Those eyes. I could get lost in those deep pools of darkness, and I didn't want to. He moved in closer, putting his hand on my cheek and lowering his lips closer to mine. No! I said, pushing him away. There are rules now. Got it? I'm not your pet. I'm not your slave. You teach me what to do, and maybe we'll hang out. Maybe. His laughter echoed down the beach and in the cove. <sighs> Shut up! Someone's going to hear you! <laughs> you have a lot to learn, little girl. He started walking again, ignoring me. I want more. I said, feeling the hunger ache in my body. I hadn't completely drained Susie, and honestly, she tasted like bitch. And what the hell is your name, anyway? Augustus, he said as he bowed. What? Are you like a Roman emperor or something? Thousands of years old? Something like that, he smiled. I'll tell you more in time. But for now, he pointed to a body lying on the beach, alone wrapped in a sleeping bag next to a burnt-out fire. My insides raged with hunger just looking at the man. We slowly approached the body, but stayed far enough away for the sleeping man to not hear our whispers. For a moment I just stared, wondering how I could possibly even feast upon another human being. Don't be afraid, pet. This man is a predator, scum of the earth. He hurts children. His last victim was a ten-year-old boy. I don't have to tell you what he did to him. How do you even know that? I was confused. Was he following this creep, too? 
close your eyes and open your mind to his thoughts. He grabbed my hand and I did as he said. Horrific versions of the man's latest conquest appeared in my head. There was his victim, naked, strangled, alone, and hidden behind a garbage bin at the Crown Hand Apartments in town. I choked on my own bile as I coughed out the image from my mind. The man stirred in his sleep and must have heard us because he awoke, startled. He looked at us and tried to get out of his sleeping bag. Hey, hey, what do you want? I strolled over, licking and biting my lips, and tried to hide my disgust as I approached. Hi there. We're looking for someone to play with. He smiled as the stranger's jacket I wore opened just a bit to reveal my naked skin. Okay, baby, whatever you want. I knelt down beside him and pushed him to lie down on the ground. I'm not sure what he saw in me, but fear spread across his face as he looked at me. I suddenly felt the piercing of my skin under new-sprouted fangs where my top and bottom canine teeth once were. Leave me alone! The words screamed from his lips. Pig, you're going nowhere. And believe me, when they find your body, they'll find all the evidence they need to know what you did to that little boy. I tore into his neck with my teeth. The copper taste of his blood tainted my lips as I began to drink. With my left hand, I pressed on his esophagus as he tried to scream and laughed while he died. His body shook and convulsed underneath me. That's enough. Augustus pulled me up by my arm and wiped my lips with his thumb. You'll feel sick if you take too much. I grabbed the creep's beanie hat and his wallet, then stuffed them into the pockets of the leather jacket, knowing I had to collect evidence so they would find who killed the kid. We walked arm in arm to the stranger's car as the sun began to rise over the Pacific. His black Mercedes had dark-tinted windows, and he assured me we would be able to make it back to town to his house before the sunrise became dangerous. He also knew exactly what we were going to do with the evidence.